Well, this is the, the final talk this morning on our short series, Prayer, God's Great Idea. And I would say that one of the great challenges of the Christian faith is unanswered prayer. You know those times you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and yet heaven remains silent. Pete Gregg, uh, the, the leader of 24-7 prayer move, movement, speaks about this phenomenon as God on mute. I quite like that. So why does God, a God who declares himself as all good and all powerful, so often just simply sit on his hands when we are praying to him? And over the years as a, as a pastor, I've sat with people and uh, together we've prayed with great faith and with great passion and brokenness for perhaps God to heal a, a husband and a father from terminal cancer. I've prayed alongside parents to ask God to bring that prodigal child back into a relationship with rather distraught parents and to find Jesus, for the prodigal to find Jesus. I've sat and prayed with mothers who've experienced full-time miscarriages even though we as a church family have prayed fervently for the safe arrival. And I could keep you here all morning. There have been many, many times that we've prayed great, uh, great prayers of faith, and yet we have not seen those prayers answered. I'm sure that you've got stories as well of uh, people and situations that you've prayed for, perhaps for many years, perhaps with many tears, and yet all you've experienced is the, the disappointing silence of heaven. God on mute. Unanswered prayer is often a barrier as well to, um, to people coming to faith and uh, the cause of sometimes followers of Jesus walking in the opposite direction, walking away from their faith. Uh, not just because of unanswered prayers, but because sometimes the inconsistency and the unpredictability of answers of the way that God deals with our prayers. Um, I know that from this, uh, this church we've spoken on many occasions about that great Dutch Christian, Corrie ten Boom, uh, a lady who was uh, very much used of God during the war years and um, she was incarcerated in the Ravensbrück concentration camp during the war. And in one of her books she tells of um, a miraculous little bottle of vitamins that kept, she, she kept giving out uh, these life-preserving nutrients to her sister and about a, uh, a couple of dozen cellmates. And uh, she, she says in the book that the vitamin should have been depleted long, long, long ago, but she just kept giving them out. And uh, her sister Betsy likened it to the biblical story of the widow of Zarephath, the supply of oil that didn't run out. Amazing provision, and, and yet, and yet, uh, a little time later, Corrie's, in her book, she tells of her sister Betsy actually dying in the camp. And I found that very confusing. Life-giving vitamins that didn't run out, and yet she died anyway. And I'm just being honest with you this morning. There are many times that uh, I too, like probably all of you, that you have those questions God, where are you in this? What's that all about? Not really understanding this too much, God. What's going on there? The appearance that heaven is silent is, I would say, made infinitely worse 
in the light of some sweeping statements of Jesus. For example, in John chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now that doesn't provide us much wriggle room, does it, really? You know, if Jesus had actually said, instead of what he said, if he'd actually said something along the lines of, truly I tell you, whoever <coughs> believes in me will sometimes do the work that I've been doing. And I will on occasions and in certain circumstances do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me anything in my name and I will think about it. Now, if Jesus had said that, I think I probably would have been a little bit more at ease. So how do we reconcile such lavish claims of Jesus with our experience of God sometimes, often perhaps, not answering our prayers. And as we move on in this section, uh, in the next chapter, John chapter 15, verse 7, we see much the same. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Later on in that chapter, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. If you've got your Bibles there, turn over a couple of pages into chapter 16, verse 23. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So we've got it there five times in two chapters, which I know has caused some theologians, some Bible scholars to believe that Jesus was offering this as a promise only to the earliest disciples, to the immediate disciples that he had there with him and not to all Christians in all places at all times. For others, the focus perhaps in trying to understand this is on the qualifying statement that Jesus brings out. In Jesus' name. And they emphasise that in Jesus' name, is not some kind of magical incantation that we put at the end of our prayer, you know, just to let, know that God, let God know that we finished. It's a sort of a spiritual over and out. No, it's not meant as that. And to pray in Jesus' name is not some Christian abracadabra, open sesame. Uh, but, but, but to pray in Jesus' name means that we pray according to his nature and will and with his authority. And I'm sure that most of us who have been a Christian at any length of time, we, we, we get that, we understand that. But what about those times when we are appearing to praying in Jesus' name? That we're not praying for ourselves for selfish motives, we're not praying for abundant riches, we're not praying for a Beverly Hills mansion or a helicopter pad, we're not praying for a lottery win or even for Villa to win the championship, although there's probably more chance of a lottery win. I've just left half the church behind. Should I have said blues? <laughs> our prayers are not frivolous, they're not foolish, and our requests appear to be godly, wise, online, with God's revealed character. But yet, heaven remains silent. 
Bill Hybels, the American pastor in his book, Too Busy Not to Pray, deals with this conundrum of unanswered prayer by saying the following. He says, if my request is wrong, God will say no. If the timing is wrong, God will say slow. If I am wrong, God will say grow. But when the request is right, the timing is right, and I am right, God will say, let's go. Now, you might think that a little bit superficial, a little bit trite, and perhaps it is. But it does actually point us in the right direction, showing us that the Bible provides us with a number of clues as to why sometimes our prayers are not answered in the way that we'd hoped. And over the last couple of days, I've been uh, reading and reflecting on this dilemma of unanswered prayer. And uh, as I said a few moments ago, I came across this guy, Pete uh, Gregg, the leader of the 24-7 prayer mo uh, movement. And uh, he attempts to answer this dilemma um, by thinking in terms of God's world, God's will, and God's war. Let's try to unpack some of this. First of all, God's world. <coughs> it must be said that most of the suffering on our planet has come about because of two principles that God has built into creation. And yet, without these two principles, we would not experience life as we know it. And these two principles might also explain why God doesn't always give us what we ask for in prayer. Now, the first principle I'm talking about is human freedom. God is a God who defines himself as love. And love always demands a response, uh, demands freedom of choice. God doesn't compel us to love him back. That would make us robots. God's authority over the world is, is not some dictatorship uh, that dominates by brute force or by manipulating or by controlling. That's the way that Satan works. God is different. God draws us into a relationship with him. He influences. He romances. He invites us to dance with him. We have that freedom of choice. And that freedom is at the heart of everything that is right in, with this world and everything that is wrong with this world. You see, whilst it's good and right for us to pray for God to change the heart of that prodigal son or daughter, God does not force that child into submission. Yet, at the same time, we know that prayer can be ever so effective in these areas with people coming to faith. And therein lies a mystery. And it's a mystery that has confounded theologians for centuries. The mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility together. As the old hymn says, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. And it's very hard for us human beings to fully appreciate and understand what's going on there. But all we can say is that God does very often uh, respond in uh, response to our prayers for others. Now, I don't know if you... Uh, I've watched this movie, Bruce uh, Almighty. <laughs> I, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a cheesy tale. It's a, it's a funny film. And it tells a story of this ordinary guy, uh, Bruce Nolan, 
a television reporter and is played by Jim Carrey and uh, he gets angry with God after a series of mishaps in his life and Bruce complains about God saying he could fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to and then Bruce is um, uh, summoned to attend this warehouse an empty warehouse where he actually meets God himself played by uh, Morgan Freeman and um, he decides to let Bruce try being God for a week to see if he can actually improve matters and uh, Bruce is given this uh, his new divine powers and he uses them quite selfishly for example he makes a path through the rush hour traffic so that his new sports car can get through very quickly he takes revenge on fellow uh, employees and uh, some thugs who had previously beaten him up and then he tries to impress his girlfriend Jennifer Aniston and uh, lassoes the moon and pulls it a bit uh, nearer in order to enhance the romantic mood simultaneously causing a tidal wave in Japan and then he answers uh, the prayers of 400,000 people who prayed that they should win the lottery and he answered them yes you can win the lottery diluting the grand prize to almost nothing okay it may not be everybody's uh, cup of tea but the one thing that uh, Bruce Almighty learns is the complexity of prayer and gains a new humility and prayer is more complex than Bruce thought and indeed it is just think it out for yourself if 12 Christian people are praying for the same dream job that they've applied for 11 of them are going to have their prayers unanswered if two Christian nations are at war with each other and they're both praying to God that God should give them the victory as was the case in the American Civil War how does prayer work there Mahatma Gandhi once was once asked if you were given the power to remake the world what would you do first well, it was a very good question and he gave a very mature answer. The thing I would do first is pray for the power to renounce that power. Great answer. So I said two principles. The second principle is that God has created our world with its order, with its finely tuned balances. And without um, those consistent natural laws, living would be virtually impossible. The same metal knife that I use to cut food on my plate can be used to stab a person. God doesn't allow me to use it as a knife at food times, but should I wish to hurt someone, that same knife would turn into a banana. That doesn't happen. It's a really interesting quote here from C.S. Lewis, uh, a Cambridge scholar, the author of Chronicles of Narnia. God can and does on occasions modify the behaviour of matter and produce what we call miracles. But the very conception of a common and therefore stable world demands that these occasions should be extremely rare. Now, personally, I believe in miracles. Hey, feel a song coming on. <laughs> Perhaps I better not go there. <laughs> I, uh, how, how to empty the church in one fell swoop. But I also believe, yes, I do believe in miracles. But I also believe that C.S. Lewis is largely right in what he says, that miracles require a step uh, God to step outside the laws of nature and not the norm. And that's why we call them miracles. In God's world, some prayers aren't answered the way that we think that they should be answered. 
because our understanding and our expectations of God are wrong. Now, I've known over the years Christians who have lost faith because of some trial, great trial that they've had, and they've not had uh, God answer the prayer in the way that they expected. They believe that they should have had a more positive response from God in that time, that God should have come to their rescue, should have brought healing, should have brought deliverance or whatever. There's a great story in uh, the Old Testament book of Daniel. And there we read of uh, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, being ordered by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to bow down and worship um, an idol, uh, a golden idol in Babylon. Now, if you know a little bit of your history, it was at the time when the Babylonians came in to Judah and Jerusalem and took virtually the whole nation back to Babylon where they were slaves, they were exiles in a foreign land. It was at that time. And these three young guys had been taken alongside Daniel and others, but they were worshippers in God. There was no way that they were going to bow down and worship this golden idol, as King Nebuchadnezzar had said. And this is what we find in Daniel chapter 3. Let me read the verses to you. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But the next few words I put in bold there. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I just love that answer, don't you? What, in, what an incredible answer. What maturity, what wisdom in these young guys. But these young guys did not think for a moment that God had to, that he was bound to deliver them from the flames. If God did, it was going to be wonderful. If not, well, that was okay too. Because in their minds and in their hearts, God was still on the throne and he was still to be worshipped. I think it's an important message here. It's an important message, I would say, for the Western world, Christians in the Western world, that we have this right theology of suffering as Christians. A theology which says, on the one hand, that suffering is never God's will. But on the other hand, that it says that this side of heaven, suffering is inevitable. But there's coming a day, a day when Christ returns, when all suffering will cease. But between there and there, we are living in this kind of tension. There'll be times when supernatural powers, uh, supernatural answers will come to our prayers. We'll observe healings and answers to other prayer. But that is not always so within the sphere of our lives now. And we live in this tension. The kingdom of God has come. Yes? With the, with the coming of Jesus, it was inaugurated. And it will come to its fulfilment when Christ returns. And that's why we have been invited to pray with Jesus in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, God rules supreme in heaven. And in heaven, his will is always done. And we are invited, along with other Christians, to pray for heaven's blessings and for a little bit of heaven, where God's will is always done, to come to our earth. In other words, 
our prayers will affect the now. I suppose this tension is a little bit like um, having some really warm uh, days or um, maybe in mid-March. You know, we've all been there, haven't we? You know, you had a really tough winter and you've come through and it's mid-March and you go out and you see the flowers in the gardens and you feel the sun on your skin and it's so wonderful. But really, in this country, we know that we know that summer has not yet come. It's only March and only a taste of summer. Next week, we could have hurricane winds and, and snow. But, you know, just, just, just catch what I'm saying here. Sometimes those miracles are a little taste of what is to come. God's saying, do you know what? One day, you will be removed from this world of sin. You will be in a place of utter perfection. You will know the warmth of, warmth of summer, if I can put it that way. Okay, let's move on. The second reason why our prayers are not always answered uh, in the way that we expect is God's will. Now, most of us here, I would say, that we claim that we know what is right for us. Yeah? We are captains of our own ship. We know what is right for us. But do we? But do we really? Do we? I'm sure that most of us can look back on our lives uh, and look back on the times that we have prayed for something passionately, only to be thankful to God that he did not give us the thing that we prayed for at that time. Yes? And I think, you know, an illustration that I've given to you on other occasions, uh, sorry I'm repeating it, is that great story of Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Graham. She said, if God had given me the things that I had asked for when I prayed for them, then I would be married to the wrong man three times over. <laughs> and um, such honesty there. But God often says no. And his saying no is really an act of mercy on his part towards us. Just think of it. If, if God always answered our prayers with a yes, his involvement in our lives would be limited to our, by, our own by our own limitations, by our own imagination, and also by our own insecurity. Some prayers aren't answered because God has got something better in store for us. And it would appear that uh, Paul the Apostle also believed that. Uh, we read in 2 Corinthians 12 in the New Testament that Paul informs us that uh, God had given him what he calls his thorn in the flesh, in the flesh, a messenger from Satan. That's what he says, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan. Now, there have been many rainforests chopped down to provide enough paper for what this idea of Paul's thorn in the flesh might be. And everybody seems to have a different view on it. Dr. Paula Gooder, uh, in her PhD thesis, lists 36 possible alternatives to what this mysterious thorn might be. Some people have said it was epilepsy, that was Paul's thorn in the flesh. Some have said that he suffered with severe migraines and headaches. Others have said, no, it was sexual temptations, that was his thorn in the flesh. Others have said it was eye trouble and still others. One popular view is that he had some kind of virulent malaria. Do you want to know which it was? We don't know. <laughs> and you know what? I am so glad we don't know. 
Because now we can all relate to Paul's thorn in the flesh and not just those who suffer with the same particular ailment that he had. But whatever his thorn was, it was serious and debilitating. He calls it a messenger of Satan. It was a hindrance to his ministry. And Paul tells us in that same chapter that he prayed on three occasions. He pleaded with the Lord to take that thorn, whatever it was, away from him. Three times. And it seems as if there were some, some kind of special prayer times. You know, maybe he invited his friends over to pray, anointed with oil, lay hands. I don't think that it was some kind of uh, casual request, you know, sort of hands in pockets, walking up the street. Oh, by the way, Lord, can you get rid of this thorn? I don't think it was like that. But I think, you know, three special occasions, there were prayer meetings for him. But Paul believed in healing prayer as well. He witnessed it on many times in his ministry. Remember the time that he raised Eutychus from the dead after Eutychus fell from three stories up out of a window when Paul was preaching his long, long, long sermon and he fell asleep. Don't go there. <coughs> You're better than that. Paul believed in the miraculous. But he was also aware that God doesn't heal every person requiring healing. And he lived in that tension. That tension of the kingdom of God, which is yet, but is not yet. Paul prayed and prayed and prayed for God to take this thorn away from him. But God didn't answer that prayer in the way that Paul prayed it. And the reason was that God had something better than just a physical healing for him. And Paul learned that a real awesome lesson, really, through this thorn, which I don't believe he could have learned any other way. And the lesson that he learned from that thorn was that God's grace was sufficient for him. And also that God's power works best in weakness. I just want to skip when I hear that. God's power works best in weakness. You see, Paul might not have understand, or understood rather why his prayer wasn't being answered at first, but I'm sure that he got it in the end. He did get it in the end, that God had a better plan. Think of Jesus. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified, praying to his Father, let this cup pass from me meaning the crucifixion. Prayer wasn't answered in the way that Jesus asked that initially. Why? Because God had a, a better plan, a bigger plan in mind, a plan for blessing the whole world, a plan that Jesus humbly accepted in obedience to his Father's will. Not my will, but your will be done. Some prayers are not answered because it is God's will to do something a bit deeper in our lives. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at this verse. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask God. And on that occasion, I suggested that there are some things that God will do for us if we ask him that he will not do if we do not ask him. Got that? There are some things that God will do if we ask him that he will not do if we do not ask him. 
I think we got that, 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 that principle, but let's move on because obviously we need to understand Scripture in context. And the next verse says, When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on pleasures. Now, James here is referring to the kind of um, prayers which are selfishly motivated. And he's saying that some Christians don't get because, very simply, they don't ask. But others ask, but they don't get because they're asking with the wrong motives. And that tells me that the why we pray is just as important as what we pray for. And there are occasions that God is wanting to do a much deeper work in our lives, that he withholds an answer, maybe for a time, because it's the wrong request. Or maybe he is wanting us to hold on to him that we will get some new revelation of who he is and what he is doing and what he is like, something deeper. It may be because God is wanting to confront something that needs to change in our lives. David writes in Psalm 66, verse 18, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And there is a connection. There's a connection between our personal walk with God and answered prayer. Similarly, there are many other verses in the Bible which um, bring in domestic and political reasons that might actually get in the way of our prayers being answered. Look at this one in 1 Peter 3, 7. Now, this is a verse which is uh, very easily overlooked. Let's have a look at this together. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. It's gone very quiet. <laughs> Do you get the message here? If the cap fits... I've not heard too many sermons on that verse, actually. I don't think I've ever preached on it, ever, no. It's interesting, though, isn't it? What about Proverbs 21, verse 13? Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. In other words, how do you expect God to listen to you when you are not yourself listening to the cries of the poor? I've said that there are occasions when the Lord withholds an answer because we do not, perhaps at that stage, have the maturity, the humility, the discernment or the wisdom to receive what we are praying for. And what God is desiring more than anything else is to show <laughs> us, now catch this, to show us that he himself is a greater answer than the thing that we are praying for. You got that? That as we are praying and as we are wrestling with God and as we are wondering what on earth is happening in my life and we are confused and frustrated with God <clears throat> and he is drawing us into a different place, a deeper place. And the benefit of that is that we are learning that he himself is a greater answer than the things that we are asking him for. And the main point of prayer isn't getting what we want from God. It's getting God himself. You see, again, if we were to give everything that we desired, if we were to get everything we desired from God the moment that we asked, then our relationship with God 
would be reduced to God being a little bit like a celestial debit card. We place the card in the machine, we tap in the numbers, and hey presto, what comes out is what we've requested. But that kind of relationship really is not the way that we should be thinking of our relationship and our prayer with God. It is not the kind of Aladdin's lamp kind of relationship, but rather it's a relationship of a child with his or her heavenly father. Earlier this week, I uh, read about uh, the man who succeeded uh, Hudson Taylor. How many of you have heard of Hudson Taylor? Yeah? Great missionary. Uh, father of uh, missions in China, a great man of faith. And the guy that uh, took over him was also a great, uh, great man of faith. Uh, although I, he wasn't known to me before this week. His name is Dr. Dixon Edward Host. Good name, isn't it? And uh, this guy, each day, went on four-mile prayer walks. And in his praying, each day on his four-mile prayer walks, he prayed for all of the missionaries in the China Inland um, Mission and also their children, their families, uh, by name. Yet, it would seem at face value that his prayers got him nowhere. The futility of prayers, because as many of you will know your history, you'll know in 1949 when Chairman Mao came over, came to power in um, China, he expelled 10,000 missionaries. He was the founder of the, the People's Republic of China. Expelled all the missionaries from China, including all of those that worked for the China Inland Mission. And one would have thought that the, the missionaries being expelled really would have meant the death knell to the Chinese church. That's what I would have thought anyway. You know, the, they weren't getting very far with 10,000 missionaries there. So now that they've not got any missionaries at all, they've not got a chance. But aren't you glad that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts? Because as, as amazing as it is, in the absence of these missionaries, under a communist regime that banned Christian evangelism, revival broke out and today there are 67 million Christians in China and that's a very conservative guesstimate. As the old saying goes, if you want to see God smile, tell him your plans. <laughs> okay, the third reason why our prayers are not always answered the way that we expect is God's war. Now, some prayers aren't answered because God's will is being directly combated by the spiritual forces of evil. I mentioned Daniel already, but in Daniel chapter 10, there's a very strange story, very, very strange story. And uh, it's a story of Daniel wrestling in prayer for three weeks and not having an answer. Heaven is on silent, God is on mute. And then an angel comes to Daniel and tells him, well, we heard you three weeks ago. But, uh, but the message has been held up for the 21 days by a, by a malevolent uh, spiritual being, a powerful demon called the Prince of the Persian Kingdom, which required Archangel Michael to be commissioned to overcome this demonic force. I told you it was a strange story. But if my understanding of that strange account is correct, then it very much so agrees with what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6. 
Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. And as I read that um, just yesterday, I was just wondering, what delays are we experiencing solely because we have not recognised the spiritual warfare which is going on in the heavenlies over Tamworth? We are not using the weapons given to us by God, the weapons of our warfare, which obviously includes believing prayer. I wonder if there's a, a prince of the kingdom of Tamworth or prince of the kingdom of Glasgow, in the way that there was a demonic prince and force over Persia, preventing Daniel's prayer. Now, obviously, I don't want to go too much down that line and go further than Scripture allows, but it does beg the question, doesn't it? William Cooper, the great hymn writer, once wrote that Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. So much more I could say on that subject, but time is gone. Let me finish. Finish with uh, this psalm, and I'll come to that in a moment. But before I come to that, let me, let me just say to you this morning, and please hear my heart on this. What I've done this morning is attempted to share principles from the Bible on why sometimes our prayers are not answered, or at least not answered in the way that we have prayed them. And I hope, 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 that I have not discouraged you from praying. I certainly don't want to decrease your faith. And if you've been praying for something that has not yet happened, can I encourage you this morning, carry on praying. Don't just ask, but seek and knock like that man who woke up his friend at midnight who wouldn't take no for an answer, or that widow who wouldn't give up her attempt at justice from the unjust judge. Two stories that Jesus told about persevering uh, prayer in Luke's Gospel. Don't give up. Carry on until either that prayer is answered or God reveals to you that you can stop. Uh, and, or perhaps maybe he'll tell you to pray in a different way. <coughs> and as we go into the Bible, we see that the Bible is full of prayers, full of prayers, full of unanswered prayers, full of answered prayers. And we have uh, 150 psalms, and about half of those psalms are what are called psalms of lament. What do I mean by that? Well, those psalms which are filled with grief and complaints against God. How about that? You know, uh, many of us just see it as uh, psalms as ancient worship songs. And they are in part. But at least half of them are psalms of lament. And uh, there's no attempt to whitewash or sanitize the despair. Uh, a, a lament psalm just tells it as it is. No camouflage, no smokescreen. Full of anxiety and anger and despair and protest and doubt. Sort of raw emotion coming up. And as we see here in Psalm 13... How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, Lord, will you hide your face from me? It looks as if God was on mute there. Yeah? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? 
and day after day has sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? And just looking at those few lines there, <clears throat> there's no polite religious talk going on, is there really? You know, if some of you prayed like that on a Sunday morning, I wonder what the person next to you would think. Because no polite stuff going on here. How long? It shouldn't be this way. Why are you not around when I need you? I'm sinking, God. I'm sinking fast. And it seems as if the writer of this psalm just goes for the jugular and uh, there's a transparent, gut-wrenching honesty here. Verse 3. Look at me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. Do you know what? God loves honesty. He really do. He really does, rather. He is not so fragile that we cannot pour out to him our anger and our anguish and sometimes our disgust and our doubts and our despair and our frustration and our rage. Do you know what? I believe that God can handle all of that. We see a good example here on screen, don't we? Sort of, uh, you can imagine this, this guy just, just praying this prayer. How long, God? But can I say that as we do that, let us also include words of worship and trust. Pour out your heart, yes. Let God know how it is for you. No pretense, no hypocrisy. Be real, be authentic about your problems and needs. But let us also reaffirm your trust in God's unfailing love and in his goodness. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. It's not having one without the other. You, you can have both. You can be brutally honest and authentic in your praying, and you're pouring out your heart to God, and at the same time, holding on to him, trusting him, loving him, that he is a faithful God, yeah? It's a little bit like that guy that we came across a few weeks ago, the guy with the demonized son who said, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Maybe that's not a bad place to finish our series on prayer. We're going to sing a song. Guys, would you like to come back? And we're going to sing a song just to close in a few moments. And it's a song that we've sung many times in this church over the years, and I just want to read the words to you now. Your thoughts are so much higher than mine. I see so dimly at times. Your ways are so much higher than mine, and yet you care about my life. Teach me to trust you. Teach me to hold to you. Teach me to walk with you, even though sometimes I'm blind. Teach me to run to you. Teach me to come to you. Teach me to trust you, Lord, and your plan for my life. Teach me to trust your ways Oh Lord, please will you stand and just take this time this morning as we are singing this and use these words to be your words and your heart and pour out your heart to Jesus. I know that there are different needs within this building this morning, personal needs, needs of families, needs of finances. You've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed. Just pour out your heart to him. But also, hold on to that unfailing love this morning.